Except for Saturdays, I eat breakfast at about 7.15 with all the family. We eat cereal and juice. Same cereal, same juice, every day. I love it. Afterwards, we read the Bible. And boys choose the book that we'll work through, and so they choose books like Genesis and Daniel and not Romans. They've never chosen Romans. So we're in Genesis now, smack in the middle of this beautiful short story from chapter 37 to 50, Joseph. And about a week ago, I was reading along. I usually do the reading, sometimes Karsten does. And whammo, I got hit with this message. Just almost all came at once. And uh, I want to tell you what it meant to me. The chief word is comfort. Now, it may not spell comfort as we move through it, but at the end, I hope you'll see the assurance, the reassurance, the comfort it gave to me as I saw it all fall into place. John the Baptist leaped right out of Genesis. Here's what I want to do. I want to spell out for you similarities I see between John the Baptist and Joseph. Then I'm going to mention the key difference I see, and then I'm going to draw a few practical lessons for our life today. Both Joseph and John the Baptist were born to fathers who were very, very old. Luke 1.7 says, both Zechariah and Elizabeth were advanced in years. Genesis 37.3 says, Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his children because he was the son of his old age. These were very, very special children. Not only because their fathers are old, their mothers were barren. It says in Genesis 29.31, When the Lord saw that Leah, now that's not his mother, that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel, that's his mother, was barren. Then in Luke 1, 7, of course, it says that Elizabeth had no children because she was barren. So these two children were deeply desired children. Surprises, amazing gifts from God. When deeply godly people want something very badly, they pray earnestly to the Lord. And that's the third thing. These children were answers to prayer. Miraculous answers to prayer. Genesis 30, verse 22. God remembered Rachel. God hearkened to her. In other words, she had been praying. God hearkened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph which means he adds, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. And Luke 1.13 says, the angel to Zechariah, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer is heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. So, they were both given in miraculous answer to prayer. And then Dana hit the nail right on the head when the angel tells Mary, What's happened to Elizabeth? He says, with God, nothing shall be impossible. And I like that verse too, because it came in answer to prayer. Zechariah had been praying. So the births of John and Joseph are the fruit of God's omnipotence. They are proof 
that God can bless where it looks humanly impossible, and that He likes to do that in answer to prayer. Now, in retrospect, I think we can see that these miraculous prayers are like banners over the whole life of these people. These people are going to be something great. God is going to do something remarkable. Nothing is going to be impossible for God in these men's lives. It seems like God very often, before he does a great thing, announces what he's going to do. I think the reason he probably does that is because uh, then when it happens, we are more clear about who did it. And in the case of John and Joseph, he did that. The angel said to Zechariah, many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. He tells in advance what's going to become of John. It's a little different with Joseph, but also similar. Joseph is 17 years old, and he starts to have dreams, crazy dreams. For example, says to his uh, brothers, hear this dream which I've dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf rose up and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. Now, that was a clear prediction, we know, from retrospect, that he's going to become the king of Egypt, basically, and uh, his brothers are going to come down there begging. Well, not only does God predict what he's going to do beforehand in these two men's lives, in order to show that it's he who does it, I think there's another reason in Joseph's case the very prediction precipitates the fulfillment. Those brothers got so mad, they sold him into slavery. And what beautiful irony. Isn't this great? The irony here is just so fantastic. We'll get rid of this dreamer. We'll show him. And they begin the series of events by which the dreams come true. And they fall on their faces. I just love this story. It's got so many interesting twists. And the lesson, of course... For us all, in that particular point, is it's going to happen every time you try to resist the will of the Lord, you're going to wind up fulfilling it every time, even if you fulfill it like Judas. So, here's this 17-year-old Joseph sent away to Egypt. Now, his aged father gets word that he's been eaten by a wild beast. He rips his clothes open, falls on the ground, cries for days will not be comforted by his family. His favorite son is gone forever. It's one of those scenes like you've had in a movie or on television. You want to smash into the TV and say, hey, no, it's not that bad. Really, he's, he's down in Egypt. Don't cry. Believe God. He's going to work everything out for good. He can't hear you. He just goes on crying and crying for 20 years. He didn't know. What a lesson, right off the bat. For 20 years, it looked awful. No answer, no reason. So if you've only waited 5 or 10 or 15, don't give up yet. Here's another similarity between John and Joseph. They're both forerunners and way preparers. Jesus said of John, this is the one of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, who shall prepare the way before thee. Luke 7, 27. John is clearly a way preparer. He's going to make ready a people 
for the Lord, according to Luke 1.17. Now, Joseph's trip to Egypt, even though it was forced upon him, quite against his will, was also a way-preparing mission. He says in chapter 45, verse 5, God sent me before you. He's talking to his brothers after he's revealed himself to them at the end. God sent me before you. That reminded me, by the way, of Ray Bakke from Jeremiah 29 when he pointed out how the exiles going into Babylon, God said, I sent you to these cities. It's exactly the same with Joseph. He gets carried away in slavery and God turns around and says to him, I sent you. God sent me before you to preserve a remnant on the earth. That's not unlike John the Baptist's ministry. And to keep alive for you many survivors. So at least this much is in common. The real significance of John the Baptist and Joseph is not in themselves, but in what follows as a result of their mission. For Joseph, it was keeping alive the remnant of the 70 when he brought them down to Egypt and gave them food. And for John the Baptist, it was calling a faithful remnant out to be ready for the Messiah when he came. Now, Joseph and John got a reputation, a very similar reputation. They were both righteous, uncompromising, holy men of God. And they earned the respect of the respective leaders in their area. In Mark 6.20, Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and kept him safe, it says. Genesis 39.2 tells us how the Lord was with Joseph when he entered Potiphar's house, earned Potiphar's complete trust, and Potiphar put everything in his control because they were righteous and holy men. And it goes a little further, the similarity. The most singular expression of their righteousness is that they opposed outright sexual sin. John the Baptist cried down God's judgment on Herod and Herodias because Herod had taken Herodias, Philip's wife, his brother's wife. Unlawful. You're wrong. Don't do that. He made it a public matter. Joseph did the same thing privately. Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him. And what John did in principle publicly, Joseph did in private in his own personal behavior. He resisted her. He fled out of the house when she tried to get him to lie with her. And in both cases, they wind up in jail. Now, this is where I came in at the breakfast table. That's what hit me. They, they both are in jail due to these enraged women, Herodias and Potiphar's wife. It says in Mark 6:17, Herod sent and seized John, bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. Herodias could not endure the continuing prosperity of a man who wrote in scarlet letters her sin for everybody to read. She was going to have his head if she could possibly get it. Potiphar's wife concocts this fabricated story. He tried to assault me. And her husband believes her and throws Joseph into Pharaoh's prison. She wants his head too. And then here's a final similarity before I point out the difference. 
And this is probably why it gripped me so much. They were both 30 years old. 28 in Joseph's case. Roughly 30 in John the Baptist's. They were five years younger than I am. They were just young men. Now, we know that from uh, Luke 3.23 says Jesus was about 30 when he began his ministry. We know John was born six months before Jesus was. And we know it from Joseph because it says he was 30 when he entered Pharaoh's service and that was two years after he went into jail. That grabbed me. I said, these, these men are like me. And then the difference emerged. And it shocks us because of how similar they are. Joseph gets out and rises to kingship, the right-hand man of the Pharaoh. And John gets his head cut off. And he's 30 years old. And that just caused all kinds of emotions to well up in me. It caused me to ask all kinds of questions. Genesis 39-21 pictures how God responded to Joseph in jail. The Lord was with Joseph showed him steadfast love, gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison, and the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's care all the prisoners who were in the prison and whatever was done there, he was the doer of it. The keeper of the prison paid no heed to anything that was in Joseph's care because the Lord was with him and whatever he did, the Lord made to prosper. Indeed, he did prosper. He got out in two years and became the ruler over Egypt. Strange turn of affairs. And also a strange turn of affairs for John. Let's put ourselves back there. It's late one night in the dungeon of the palace at Tiberias. Tiberias, the city that Herod built on the Sea of Galilee. He was the ruler over this uh, region, Galilee and Perea. It's down in the dungeon, late. He's about ready to go to sleep. He hears this party going on. And he can hear the flutes and the lyre and the tambourines and every now and then a raucous cheer as the cronies of Herod cheer on Salome in her dance. And she pleases them very, very much. And Herod was probably drunk by the end of the party. And when she's finished her burlesque, hey, bravo! And Herod looks around, oh man, they, they like you. This is, this is great. I'll, uh, what do you, this is a great dance. What do you want? I'll give you anything up to half my kingdom. Herodias is in the doorway, off to the side, eyes gleaming. What shall I ask him for, Mom? Ask him for John's head on a platter. Beautiful. Walks back in. These are the actual words from Mark 6, 25. I want you to give me at once the head of John, the Baptist, on a platter. Herod tries to conceal his shock. The cronies, hey, on with the party. This is groovy. All right. What can he do? Just like Pilate. What can he do? Sends the soldier down into the dungeon. Now let's stop here a minute. 
He is 30 years old. He entered the desert as a boy. The Word of the Lord came to him and brought him like a whirlwind of righteousness through Palestine. One year in the ministry. And he's in jail. One year in the ministry. And the door cell opens. Now what do you want? The king has ordered your head on a platter. What? What did I do? What happened? You didn't do anything. They liked the way Salome danced. Now, I want you to try to picture this split second. I don't know how long they gave John to deal with this problem. But just try to imagine what went through John's head. I don't think they gave him time, probably, to uh, formulate the theological problem. Or give the answer. So we're left with the question, did he cry out and say something like, so much for serving the living God, pulls you out of your mother's arms, sends you into the wilderness, prepares you to prepare the way of the Messiah, gives you one year of ministry, then flings you on the trash heap of Tiberias. Was that John the Baptist's response? Would it have been ours? Or did he, like Jesus, Jesus was 33, like 1 Peter says, submit himself to the inscrutable sovereignty of God and say, I hand over to him who judges justly. Bow his neck. We don't know. We don't know. But I tell you, that event has so gripped me in my reading the Gospel of Luke, I can't shake it out of my head. The theological and personal existential problem that that must have created for this man of God in that split second when for the whim of a king and a sexy kitten, he gets his head chopped off. I mean, everything cries out, this is absurd, this is crazy, there's no meaning in the world. There's no God in control anymore. Now, the question I raise in relation to Joseph is, was God showing steadfast love to Joseph, but not to John? I don't think so. And I'll tell you the reasons why I don't think so, and then show you why this is so comforting. Jesus said of John, there is no man greater born of woman. And he said it when he was in jail. He said, this is more than a prophet. And when the news came to Jesus, he's dead. You know what Matthew says? Well, I, I sometimes wish the gospel writers were a little more emotional, but they are unbelievably trenchant. He said, he withdrew from there in a boat to a lonely place. Enough said. Here's another reason. Hebrews 11. Turn with me to Hebrews 11. Verse 34. Hebrews 11 is the saints of faith, right? What they were able to do by power through faith. 
And I want you to contrast two verses because these verses are Joseph and John, though they aren't mentioned. First, look at verse 34. And we'll just pick out one phrase from verse 34. He's listing the things that people have done by faith. And the key phrase is, they have escaped the edge of the sword. You got that in your eye? By faith, men and women have escaped the edge of the sword. God has, in answer to their prayers, turned the hearts of the jailer and Pharaoh and saved them and prospered them by faith. And then look at verse 37. And by faith, they were killed with the sword. You got your eye on that phrase? You couldn't ask for a clearer contrast, could you? By faith, some escaped the edge of the sword. By faith, some were killed with the sword. That is, God simply chose not to intervene. Which I take to mean their time was up. Their ministry was over. Their mission was accomplished. And He took them home. So here are the lessons in conclusion. Number one, don't count on a long life. My middler year at Fuller, Jim Morgan, 36 years old, got cancer in his stomach. He weighed 200 pounds and was wicked on the handball court. Loved to play with him, except when he bumped into him. They opened it up and closed it. And he was dead in 10 months. From 200 down to 100 pounds, and we watched him. From that day on, I have not counted on more than 36 years. And maybe I've only got one left. I do not count on a long life. If the Lord gives me 110 like He gave Joseph, so be it. If he takes me next year, don't any of you say, he was so promising. Such a great future lay ahead of the church. Say this, his ministry was complete. And the Lord took him. Second lesson. God is the ultimate giver of life and the ultimate taker of life. And... That means, I think, that Joseph's task in saving Israel wasn't complete. It clearly wasn't. He had to gain the rulership in order to finish his mission. John's mission was complete. That's really, I summed both of those points up under the first one, so that's two. Don't count on a long life, and God will take you when your mission is complete. As long as you're here, you have a mission. My dad has been so close to death twice I told you about the time he choked in the restaurant, remember? And a complete stranger got up and hit him on the back. He was almost dead. And then, then he was in a bus accident with my mother and was very seriously injured. Every time, when I sat with him in the ambulance, bringing him home for Atlanta to Greenville, and he was just weeping there ten days after the death, he, he just kept weeping. What does God have for me? What does God have for me? Why is he doing this? Let's me live again and again and again. That's exactly what he should have been saying. God's got a mission for Bill Piper and for everybody in this room who's got breath, it's a gift, second by second, and it's a mission. Third, and finally, um, a believer should never think that a wrenching, 
painful turn of events means that God is against us. There are three reasons why it's hard for us to believe that a painful tragedy entering our lives is really going to work out for our good. Here are the three reasons. They're both countered in this text. Number one, it's hard to believe it when it lasts 20 years. I thought, I thought of Doc Wyden right away. It's 20 years, 1980, right? Or is it 21 now that his wife had the stroke? 20 years, lost a leg, can't talk. On and on the years go. Jacob lost his son. And for 20 years, God did not tell him that it was going to work out for good. Left him in the dark. And the point of this text is God is working for our good. We'll see that in just a minute. That's the first reason. It lasts long, God. Show me now what the purpose of it all is. Here's the second reason it's hard for us to believe it. When they come right after each other. One tragedy hits, we come through it by the grace of God and right after it, another one. It's exactly what happened to Joseph. He is the apple of his father's eye. And they sell him into slavery. A 17-year-old boy sent away from his home never to see his folks again as far as he knows. How did he handle it? God prospered him in the house of Potiphar. Thank you, Lord. You've taken care of me. And the next day, he's in jail for righteousness' sake. Would have been so easy to throw up his hands and say, what's the use of serving the living God anyway? Just let you build you up to knock you down again. That's why it's hard sometimes to believe God is for us. But wouldn't it have been crazy of Joseph to shake his fist in God's face when if he had had the eyes of faith, he would have seen this is just step number two on the way to glory over Egypt. He couldn't have known. Just faith buys that. Only faith. And the promises of the Word. And then finally, it's hard to believe that God works for us in tragedy when that tragedy ends in death and not deliverance. And that's John the Baptist. I think the main point of the story of Joseph is Genesis 50, verse 20. Joseph says to his brothers, As for you, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Now, I would commend to you that if you come over few thousand years, John, if he had been given a half an hour's reprieve to talk to Herodias, could have said with absolute truth, Herodias, you mean it for evil. God means it for good. If that's not true, I've got no God. But it is true, and I think we can celebrate it very much.